Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. When nationalism began to take hold in Europe during the 19th century, European Jews conceived the Zionist project of creating a Jewish nation in their ancestral homeland of Palestine. An important part of that project involved reviving the Hebrew language, which for centuries had been a language of worship and rabbinic scholarship, but not a language used to describe and enrich modern Jewish life. The challenge of reinventing Hebrew for the age of nationalism was especially poignant for Jewish writers, poets, and intellectuals, among the most prominent of whom was Chaim Nachman Bialik, a writer and pioneer of modern Hebrew poetry. And the challenge was acute. How could an ancient biblical language be modernized to powerfully convey a 19th century Jewish world? For inspiration and precedent, Bialik turned to the Jewish poets of medieval Jewish Spain, or Sfarad, as Jews called the region. He was one of the editors of the work of a poet called Solomon Ibn Gabirol. What he, he did was basically gather his poetry together and make it so that it could be published. You then start to see places where Ibn Gabirol's poetry makes its way into Bialik's poetry, too. That's Sarah Pierce, an associate professor of Spanish and Portuguese languages and literature at New York University. She says that Ibn Gabirol was only one among several Sephardi poets who, beginning in the 10th century, revolutionized medieval Hebrew poetry by borrowing techniques and forms from Arabic poetry. That was a major innovation for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the first time that there is quantitative meter in Hebrew poetry. And the way that I like to describe that sometimes is to ask modern readers to imagine a world where there's only T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, and suddenly William Shakespeare appears and starts writing sonnets. Pierce says that Jewish poetic interest in Arabic poetry was part of a dispute among Jewish scholars of language about the relationship between Hebrew and Arabic. Some of whom were interested in this kind of scientific method of studying language that's similar to what we use today and looking at the similarities between Hebrew and Arabic and seeing that they were there and asking themselves, why is that the case and what can we do with that information? And then there was another group of philologists who didn't want to admit that uh, that Hebrew, which was their sacred language, was in any way similar to anybody else's language. Not surprisingly, Ibn Gabirol and other Jewish poets sided with the more liberal philologists, and they began borrowing not only poetic forms from Arabic poetry, but also themes. So they would start writing uh, war poems and poems in praise for their patrons, love poetry, wine poetry, um, which some people don't don't realize is a, a form in, in Arabic poetry because of the stereotype that Muslims don't drink. But in medieval Spain, there were actually these famous garden parties where Muslims and Jews would gather together and drink wine and recite poetry about the wine and the good company. To write about these concepts, as well as about science and philosophy, medieval Jewish writers in Spain had to modernize biblical and rabbinic Hebrew. Biblical and rabbinic Hebrew just don't have the words that Arabic-speaking readers needed to use to talk about metaphysics and physics, to, to talk about science in the Greek tradition, which was a really important field of study in the Islamic world during the Middle Ages. And so you see, you see translators, um, people who are translating Arabic commentaries on Aristotle, for example, into Hebrew, complaining about how impoverished the Hebrew language is. One of the things that they do is, is coin all these new words, and, and the Middle Ages is a, a time for a real flourishing of the Hebrew vocabulary. 
So it's not hard to understand why Bialik and other Jewish writers and poets of his era, and those who came after him, were attracted to the Jewish poetry of medieval Spain. For example, the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai was heavily influenced by Sephardi poetry. He has some poems that he writes in the voice of some of the poets. Um, so he writes in the voice of Ibn Gabirol. He writes in the voice of Halevi. Um, he writes an, a lyric poem, really difficult, really complex and hard to understand, that's kind of a riff on a medieval travelogue um, that was originally written by a man called Benjamin of Tudela, who was a, a Spanish Jew who traveled around Europe and the Mediterranean. Amichai also wrote poems about the development of Jewish and Spanish identity side by side. So he has one poem where he personifies a fighting bull. Um, like for, for the Spanish bullfights, but he makes him Jewish. And he, he has the, the bull sort of reflect on his position as as an inevitable victim, but also as a Jewish character with some kind of self-determination and the ability to make decisions and to, to reflect critically. Now, when he was a student at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Amichai studied with Chaim Sherman, who pioneered the study of medieval Hebrew poetry. And for his final project, Amichai wrote an essay about the war poetry of Shmuel Hanagid, one of the most famous Jewish poets of medieval Spain. And it's this really remarkable essay where he first he looks at questions of how do we read this poetry? Do we read it just as it is on the page or do we read it in a historical context? And he comes to the conclusion that no, we must read this poetry in its historical context. And part of what that means for Amichai is comparing Shmuel Hanagid's war poetry to 20th century war poetry. And then towards the end of the essay, he starts to talk about Shmuel Hanagid in terms of his similarities to Federico García Lorca, who is a 20th century Spanish poet, also from Granada, like, like Shmuel Hanagid, who was executed in the Spanish Civil War. But he left behind this body of poetry that really meditates on the place of Granada and meditates on some of the forms of the Arabizing Hebrew poetry and the Arabic poetry that was written there. Amichai's point, ultimately, is that Shmuel Hanagid was as much a Spanish poet as Lorca was. That they write against the same backdrop. They're writing effectively about the same wars, you know, even, even though they're hundreds of years apart. And so for Amichai, this was really a way of grounding Hebrew poetry in a modern European context. He's drawing filiations between modern Spanish poets and the Spanish poets who came before them. And he's, he's insisting upon the Spanishness of the Jewish poets. Amichai even insists on downplaying the nature of anti-Semitism among medieval Muslims and Christians, describing it as what he called anti-Semitism light, meaning something like anti-Judaism as opposed to a hatred of Jews as individuals. This was a bold move for a young student. As a college student, he's bucking the historiographic trend of the day. I mean, it's, it's really bold and intellectually daring. And more importantly, he's emphasizing the ways in which medieval Spain worked for Jews. You know, it was a place where people might say things, might use the word Jew to mean a derogatory characteristic um, or with a derogatory sense. They, did, they weren't directing it at Shmohanagi, for example. And so, so Amichai's conclusion there is he was able to serve both his Jewish nation and his Muslim king. Now, you may wonder why poets such as Amichai and Bialik, who were invested in the project of creating a modern Jewish national literature, 
would find common ground with Ibn Gvirol, Shmuel Hanagid, and other Sephardi poets who lived in and celebrated a non-Jewish land. The answer, says Pierce, is that these medieval Jewish poets didn't see Sfarad as a land of exile. So there's this poet, Judah Halevi, who over the course of his life came to believe that the only correct way to be Jewish was to live in the land of Israel, to live in the Levant, to live in in historic uh, greater Syro-Palestine. But as he was preparing to leave, many of his contemporaries, who included other poets, other cultural figures, basically reacted to him as if he were nuts. The responses that Judah Halevi got as he was preparing to leave Sfarad for the land of Israel was, you're leaving the true Israel. Most of these poets came to view Sfarad as the place where Judaism could flourish, where Hebrew literature could flourish. And Palestine was this kind of backwater. Um, It was, you know, mired in crusades, and there wasn't really a lot of freedom to practice Judaism. In other words, many Sephardi Jewish poets and writers saw Sfarad as a sort of second promised land that was more hospitable than the original promised land, which at the time was embroiled in conflict between Muslim rulers and Christian crusaders. And so medieval Sephardi poetry not only provided an example for poets such as Amichai of how to adapt Hebrew to new poetic forms and topics, but also served as a model of an early type of quasi-nationalist Jewish poetry, or at least a poetry born of a thriving Jewish literary culture in a place where Jews felt rooted and relatively secure. Medieval Sephardi poetry inspired Jewish nationalist poets and writers in the generations after Amichai, and continues to serve as a touchstone today in a wide variety of contexts. In some cases, as Pierce notes, the legacy of the Jewish poets of medieval Spain has been co-opted for projects that seem at odd with their liberal and adventurous outlook. For example, a graphic novel published in 2005 about the life of Shmuel Hanagid, called Rabbeinu Shmuel Hanagid, written for children in Jewish Orthodox communities in the United States, cast the Sephardi poet and statesman as an Ashkenazi or European Jewish figure. It's set in Spain. It has a fictionalized but recognizable version of his biography. But the clothing that the people wear is characteristic of Jews of Central Europe. Their hairstyles are characteristic of Jews of Central Europe. And the language that they speak to, their, um, the, the dialogue is written in what's called Jewish English, which is a dialect in the same way that, that African-American vernacular English is a dialect that's particular to a community. In this case, different communities of American Jews. It has a particular cadence. It has specific vocabulary that's borrowed from Yiddish and from Hebrew, and it serves to, to as kind of a marker of identity. The graphic novel is also explicitly anti-Arab, pinning Shmuel Hanagid and his North African Berber allies against the Arabs. The author, it turns out, was a devotee of Mayor Kahana, a militant rabbi who founded the Jewish Defense League, which the FBI considers to be a terrorist group. And so, not surprisingly, the novel depicts Arabs as a threat to Jews. Jews can work within their societies with other people who aren't Arabs to sort of neutralize that threat. And it's it's feeding this real current of anti-Arab sentiment into how readers of this book will will understand medieval Spain. Another similar example is a contemporary introduction written for Jewish ultra-Orthodox Hasidic readers to a medieval text known as An Ethical Will, which was a moral and professional guide written by a father to his son, 
in this case written by Judah Ibn Tibon, a Jew who lived in Sfarad during the 12th century. He was a translator, and his son after him actually became the most important Arabic to Hebrew translator of the Middle Ages. He translated Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. And so this, it's not just a guide to how to live life, although it, it definitely has those components. It, it has, you know, advice on, you know, how to treat your wife properly, how to run a home. It even has a reminder that he should eat his vegetables. But it also has all of this literary advice about how do you translate and how do you think about books. The Ethical Will also quotes Shmuel Hanagid encouraging readers to learn broadly. It's an admonition. Study much from secular books, Sifrechut, uh, and you'll find that doing that makes you suitable at the gates of heaven. So he's he's advocating for wide, wide-ranging learning, not just Jewishly, but also in terms of science, medicine, philosophy. But the new introduction to Ibn Tibon's letter to his son doesn't share the document's embrace of engagement with the non-Jewish world. In fact, it takes the exact opposite approach. And in this edition, that quotation from Shmuel Nagid in Ibn Tibon's Ethical Will gets changed to read, read widely from law books, um, Sifrechok, as if, as if it's anathema to the editor and to the readers that, that Ibn Tibon and, and Shmuel Hanagid would be advocating for reading, reading widely, reading outside of the Jewish canon. And so they just change it. Read, read Jewish law. In other words, this introduction meant for a contemporary religious Jewish audience subverts Shmuel Hanagid's original message to support a Jewish Orthodox worldview. And this matters, Pierce says, because it's an example of how the complex historical reality of the Middle Ages can be manipulated for political ends. A more nefarious example involves alt-right marches, including participants dressed as medieval warriors. For them, the Middle Ages is a fantasy of when there were only, quote-unquote, white people, um, where there were only Christians, where, where they could repress Jews and Muslims. Contemporary Jewish distortions of medieval Jewish figures may not get as much attention. But when you have somebody who's a devotee of a figure like Kahana doing the same thing, it gives it a very present hook. This is a phenomenon that, that is happening right now. It's shaping our political discourse as Americans. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.